A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, there are many uh, complicated and onerous tasks uh, available to one in the literary life. But I have to tell you that uh, having an opportunity to spend the evening talking to my old friend Edna O'Brien is neither onerous nor complicated, at least I hope not. Um, it's certainly <laughs> a pleasure for me uh, to welcome you here. Um, sometimes, and only too rarely, a writer appears who seems to have been created by the culture itself seems so necessary uh, to the survival of that culture and the moral investigation of it. It was as if Ireland demanded an Edna O'Brien, and she has never failed to engage not only with the question of Ireland, but the question of our humanity and our lack of humanity, as we will discover, I hope, in the conversation around her marvellous new book, The Little Red Chairs. Stephen Dedalus, in Joyce's Ulysses, describes Ireland as a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. And I would argue tonight that part of that awakening has been due to Edna O'Brien. Before her, uh, just to remind you, it's not that the female voice wasn't evident, but in Ireland particularly, that sense of grace and beauty, honesty and memory from a woman's position was almost opposed as a fact as a fact of liberty by the church and state, and they proved it by banning the country girls, Edna's first book. But from book to book, she persevered. She's deepened her concerns and our concerns, and added luster to the idea of great writing as a transformative act. Several generations have been altered, I would say enlarged, entertained, upbraided, won over. Uh, she's as daring as ever. Uh, and she's writing now at the very peak of her powers, I say. Her new novel, as I said, is The Little Red Chairs. And it is, for my money, a masterclass in the art of the novel. It's a book about secrets and savagery, about love and war. She's unflinching. And I mean, I think the word unflinching was created for Edna O'Brien. She's enjoyed the best reviews of her career. And as I say, to be 84 and to be writing the way she is, with a concentration, a dedication, and a humanity, above all, uh, which leaves the rest of us slightly gasping. This is her 19th novel. Um, before turning to Edna, I just want to say that I was once with her in New York at the uh, premiere of a play of hers, a wonderful play called Haunted, with Brenda Blethyn. And Philip Roth was there at that same evening. Um, Philip, who's uh, been forced to jump, uh, jump out with the, with the fact that this is the great Edna O'Brien's masterpiece, this novel. But that night, he said, she's a great part of the world, Edna, isn't she? And I've never for forgotten that sentence because it seems true. So with that in mind, please, can I ask you again, put your hands together to welcome to the LRB, Edna O'Brien. So Edna, before we get into the, uh, the more famous aspects of this wonderful novel, I want, to, I want to pause with the audience and ask you about Ireland, because of course, the book opens there. Um, I want to know about your first house, your childhood home in County Clare. You once said unhappy houses are a very good incubation place for stories. They are. Why is that? I think unhappiness or anxiety or being on edge makes in any situation, whether it's your childhood home or any other place, you're constantly like sentient, you're aware. 
everything touches you. Uh, it's like being a lightning rod and everything impinges. Whereas in a happy home, um, one would be a little bit absent-minded. There's a marvelous remark, Virginia Woolf, in The Common Reader, her two books of essays which are matchless as criticism. She, she talks about um, Charlotte Bronte and Jane Austen, who did not like each other. Well, especially um, Charlotte Bronte was extremely, she said, of Charlotte Bronte, where are her clouds? Where is her thunderstorms? Where is her, and so on. And she said that, uh, Virginia said, if Jane Austen had sat on a step of the stairs in her parents' house and overheard quarrels, the whole tenor and timber of her work would be different. I think um, my parents are dead, and it is fair to say they gave me some good, strong genes, otherwise I wouldn't be around. They also gave me, in their different ways, uh, this, is, this is not to make up for the mention of the unhappiness, because I can't do that, you can't lie. But they gave me gifts that, at the time, I wasn't fully, I, w I didn't realize what they were. My mother hated the written word. It was as if she had been force-fed Molly Bloom's soliloquy <laughs> in another incarnation and decided that all literature was pornographic. I mean, she would not have known the word pornographic. So writing to her was anathema. And I used to read her little lines. Sometimes I didn't have much Shakespeare, I regret to tell you, but from a calendar, there was one or two uh, quotations from Shakespeare, very simple, Dick the Shepherd, you know. that. And I read it to my mother, trying to wean her over to the written word. And she said she was pounding mash for calves and hens. <laughs> and the boiling water was in this big pot. The steam was coming up to her face. And I'm reading her a line from Shakespeare. Another one was sharper than a serpent's tooth, this thankless child. And she looked up from the thing and she said, oh, Edna, they get their money easy. <laughs> so, and her dream for me would have been to be an air hostess. She even oh, said yes. that. Well, I haven't a good head for heights, among other things. But what she did give me was, and what Ireland gave me, and particularly, well, I have to say particularly my own part of it, because it's the part I sprung from and I'm speaking from even at this moment. She wrote me letters almost every day of her life. I have great boxes of them. Thackeray would say, you know, close your little box, my children. It's like Thackeray's casket, the end of Annecy Fair. And my, she was both describing her world to me, each moment differently, wind, weather, clothes blown off the line, snow that she thought was snow, but little dogs had eaten the sheets, mm. etc. But they are marvels of literature. Mm. Embodied in them and inherent in them, of course, was her plea, come back, come home. Uh, parents, you know, Philip Larkin said, they fuck you up, your mom and dad. But once one of my children said to me, they fuck you up your kids as well. <laughs> and she wanted me home. And although I am haunted, to use, to mention the title of my play, I'm haunted by that place in every way, religiously, uh, spiritually, physically. Do you still dream of it? Or, or, almost once or twice a week. And I'm dreaming that I'm, as I mentioned in my memoir, in some dreams I'm in and I can't get out. Windows are barred, doors are barred. Even under the, the jam of the door, there's asbestos. I'm prisoner to their ghosts. And in another dream, this will show you that I do not suffer from a happy inclination. <laughs> in another dream, I'm walking up our avenue. They called it an avenue. It was really a bit of a track. But an avenue is a lovely word. And um, I had great trees, but not in a proper English line of trees, scattered trees, oak tree, walnut tree, sycamore tree, trees, trees. I'm walking up, and our house, Drewsboro, is lit. It's lit as by 
the supernatural, the lights are so great. And outside there are lit tapers, you sometimes see here in London, occasionally in restaurants. There are the blaze of light outside, they're not tapers, they're larger, they're stouter than tapers. Torches, yeah. Exactly. And I'm walking to, as it were, my final home, my first home, and therefore my final home. And men, uh, men in armory and with swords and weapons barred the way. So the dream is about the duality that I uh, have, and I think I am not alone in it, of wanting to be, be inside, to belong, to be there, and wanting to escape. Do you think in those small Irish places the fear, such as your mother had, was of being exposed by oh, a writer? Disgraced. Disgraced by a writer. You once sent me a little note, and you quoted Evelyn Waugh, and you said, uh, Evelyn Waugh said, when a writer is born into a family, that family is destroyed, I think. Is that right? Finished. Finished. Much the same. Well, thank God my mother and father didn't know that sentence. <laughs> I think when you come from a small place, uh, everything, everything is known, and the country girls did uh, represent to them betrayal and that I was ashamed of them. I wasn't, and I'm not. But there was no women writing, there were no men writing either, and there was no library and no books. So this came as, as a lightning bolt to, to them, and everybody in the village told everybody else, told my mother, and she was mortified. She was mortified on two levels, the social level of neighbors, and, you know, we are more socially conscious than we admit because we Because it could have worked the other way, though, couldn't it? I mean, in the sense that, she, oh, I have, I have a daughter who's talented, I have a daughter who's made it in London. But it didn't go that way, it was no, the it shame. No, it went the other way, because there's the other aspect of it. She feared for my immortal soul, genuine fear. And as I've said before, when I found the book that I sent her with terror, uh, I found the book in a bolster case after she had died out in an outhouse. And every baba is given to phrases like, let's fake a bar of chocolate, let's fake a book for that. <laughs> and Baba's a little outspoken and um, a vivid character. My mother had, with black, very black ink, inked out every ignominious word. And that both made me very angry and extremely sad because for a woman hard-working in the country to sit down one day, get the ink, get the pen, get the blotting paper, go through every line of the book, I mean, it, it's matchless. I mean, we're given that, given that haunting fact, I mean, and given our propensity to guilt, I mean, is that a guilt you felt for that through your writing life, or were you determined book by book, story by story, to justify your action, do you think? I think I have a very good um, quota of guilt in my DNA, but I think it's, again, talking of the divided self or the contradiction in us, I have a rebelliousness. I'm guilty and rebel about it. Mm -hmm. I love them and I hate them. I want to go back and I don't want to go back. And um, I remember once reading uh, from the great Franz Kafka, who was another man, I think, with plenty of guilt. He said, writing is a criminal act. So they made me feel it was criminal because they believed it. And one has to remember the society at that time. It was very enclosed. It was very throttled. It was very ignorant, forgive the word, but it was. So there was something wrong in what I had done in their eyes, mm. but it's all in the past. Well, it's not really in the past because here we have this miracle of a novel where that throttling that you described, that, those hands round the neck of a society and a people is in evidence, again, yes. um, that there's, you have been one of the writers, of course, who have played a part in taking the hands off the neck uh, over the years, but then here we are back again in a small Irish town a man arrives in the small uh, town of Clunoyla. Clunoyla. 
a white-haired man from God knows where, a faith healer. Who is he? Ah, uh, who is he? Well, to them he represents a, re a holy man. Uh, a man, as you say, he has a crystal, he has white gloves and black clothes. So he's rather dramatic, but at the same time he is a mystery. And he uh, is a man who has come from, he's rather vague about which part of Europe, Montenegro or near Montenegro, he says. He is a fugitive, but they do not know that. He has come the way we all do in our lives, in some form or other, he has come as the savior. Mm. And he manifests the savior part brilliantly. There's a cliche word, but I'm afraid I have to use it, that they use about uh, Hitler and others, which is called the dark charisma. Mm. Well, A is dark and B as the charisma. But the most interesting thing, and I based it as I will talk about in a moment, is that he can, by his persuasiveness, by his very voice, by the girth of his hands, he can and does heal. So otherwise, if he'd come in and was like drinking in the pub every night and ran up a bill and then slept with two women and maybe three, then he would have not, the suspicion would mm. have aroused. He behaved impeccably and he gradually infiltrated himself into that small world. Yes. And that small world, I don't mean it as a condemnation, but they were not too alert to world affairs. They did not know that on their hands was a man who had done, killed not thousands, but hundreds of thousands. And for a person to be able to, for the character in my book, which was stimulated by once seeing in Europe on television, where I'm not often in Europe, but I happened to be that famous night, um, the Baltic war criminal Radovan Karadigitz being taken off a bus on his way to the Black Sea on a holiday. He was taken off the bus. He was finally, as they use the word, shopped. Um, they could have much earlier, but when they wanted to join the European Union, they finally because they were still all together, Milosevic, mm. Mladicic. So he was asked, are you who we think, are you so-and-so? And he says, yes. He had been practicing as a doctor or something else. When I saw that man and the metamorphosis in his appearance, because I had seen him some years before on the television as this swaggering bravado soldier, I mean, Lock and Var is not in mm. it, with his team going up a hill and you know, weapons and power and overriding yes. and territorial. Any man who could convert himself from the image I had seen over the years and the metamorphosized man mm. was something that I could not, not think on. This is fascinating, I'm sure, to everybody in this room. That process, technically, and we're familiar with it, we've discussed it a lot over the years, that alchemy, um, when a fiction writer takes, as it were, as inspiration, as a starting point, events in the world, characters in the world, and finds that they've in, almost created a space in your imagination, and then you free associate from there. But f fantastic in this case, because Karadic is somebody who we felt we knew what he'd done, but you bring us into the interior of such a man. Or I bring a version of him. Yes. If you wrote it, it would be different. Was I say such a man rather than the man himself? Because yes. this is not a fictionalized biography in any sense. No. It's, it's, when I saw that, I couldn't forget it. It took me three more years to decide to write the book. And I think I might have told you what was the clinch line of from this just amorphous thing. I would like to write a book that's about the world I live in, and yet I'm not in the trenches. I'm not in a refugee camp in, in Lebanon or, or elsewhere, but I am, like every thoughtful person, very aware and, in my own small way, compassionate, but also impotent. One, the only thing one has is our words, and it is said poetry makes nothing happen, literature makes nothing happen, but it's still valid as something 
that exists in our world and that uh, we need. We need literature. We would need literature. We need it even more. The matter of the world. Well, gets. the drive you have to get to the source, the absolute tender source of this, is amazing. If I can just remind the audience, I mean, I've had students who are 21 who wouldn't cross the road to get close to a possible character. Edna took herself to The Hague to witness, the, as it were, the players, the kind of scenarios, the kind of evidence, the kind of pain that might well become part of the ether of the novel. I mean, you did that, didn't you? Oh, yes, I had to. The research, tell us why you had to. Well, the research for this book, I'll just tell you why, why I was compelled to write it finally. Mm. A man said to me, uh, Tolstoy said there are only two great bases for stories in the world. Um, one is a man on a journey, i.e. Hamlet, and the other is stranger comes to town, i.e. Gary Cooper at high noon. Or the, so the, re the journey of reading, a, you can read the facts about someone on a, on a newspaper article or a postcard, and they're all fine. Uh, there's great reportage in the world. Mm. There is. But to, to give a person then their human aspects, their appearance, their tendencies, their voices, their secrets, mm. even their dreams. I have him dreaming you as do. well as a character dreaming about him. Was a bit of, was two things. It was a considerable assiduousness of research. And the other part is a kind of sleepwalking. Uh, I don't think I'm fully conscious when I write. Something else happens, and I always find the first lines of something launches me, if you like, into a place where I was not. Is that a question of the rhythm or the music the, the of the rhythm, thing? The rhythm, the music, and the secret content within. What is going to happen? Yeah. Because we still want story, what is going to happen? And uh, I wakened one morning, this is later in the book, and then I go back. You know how I ramble, Andrew. Mm. I wakened, it was towards the end of this book, and I thought, in my God's name, how am I going to end this book? I can't make it a jolly, happy situation, you know, where everything is now roses and false catharsis. But I wanted to give some kind of home, homecoming, some kind of grasp on this world to a woman who had been through the wars, uh, physical war, sexual, which we'll talk about. And I wakened one morning with the following line, not in my sleep, but as I wakened, it said, I am not a stranger here anymore. And that enabled me to write a whole chapter. In terms of the main research, the story is a man who comes <coughs> and a man with whom everyone is in love. They can, in some form or another, platonic, intellectual, uh, spiritual, but one woman who had a little dress shop in a small town and therefore had been to Paris and had brought some very interesting pink corsets with diamante home to her little dress shop. In short, a little romantic, yes. an Emma Bovary sort of creature who, who learned through life. And when this man came, she found herself, to her utter amazement, she's married to an older man, she found herself becoming more and more observant of him. Is he going up the street now? Is his shadow there? Did he go into the way people, especially in small places, fall yes. in love? Because you see the per She does fall in love with him, and she actually approaches him to give her a child, which he, being a wanted man with millions on his head, understandably says no. But her, her, um, her prayer and her intention, by being both very subtle in its way and also very delicate, works. That subtlety and delicacy I know is there in the passage you've decided to read. Could we? Could we ask you to do that? Because it just seems yes. the perfect moment to hear. As Edna's finding the passage, I will remind you, you already know this, all of you, but <clears throat> part of Edna's great and sublime skill is the voicing. You can hear it even as she speaks. 
There isn't a writer I know, certainly no novelist I know, who speaks in her own prose to the extent uh, that Edna does. But um, let's hear from the novel and you'll hear how that is even finessed further in the actual writing. So she's speaking of him to us, because the chapter, she's talking to the audience or to the reader. His name on everybody's lips, Dr. Vlad this and Dr. Vlad that. He has done wonders for people. Women claiming to be rejuvenated just after two treatments. It is tantamount to a miracle what he did for Hamish's wife. I began to dream about him. Different dreams. He had come into our kitchen and taken Jack's favourite favorite mug. A white china mug, a shaving mug with side handles and a fading gold crest along the lip of the rim. We searched everywhere, indoor and outdoor, my husband and I. We searched in the shed and even in the holes in the hedges where it might have just slipped down. In the dream, Jack, my husband, said that this was serious and the culprit would have to be found. I had a sense of him knowing that I myself was party to that theft. And then, in the very next dream, Dr. Vlad was delivering me of a child in my own bedroom. The child was slippery, and he eased it carefully, carefully out. Every little twist and turn, so slight, so minute, until it was freed. And then he slapped it smartly for the circulation and I heard its cry, a piercing cry, and one that I could not forget. Our burden, our traitor treasure. Dr. Vlad held it up for me, for us to see, to admire, with Jack in the very bed beside me. That was not all, it was the white mist that did it, a white mist like a winding muslin that enfolds our part of the world. Sometimes it occurs in the night, other times in the very early morning. It breaks boundaries so that adjoining counties are all one. And I was invisible to it as I set out in my little pale green citron, buoyed along, expectant and unseen. And as they used to say in the Victorian times, to be continued. <laughs> <laughs> so that is my <coughs> You've written many times, Edna, uh, about men, especially men, who have their dark deeds locked inside them. Um, it's there in the House of Splendid Isolation. It's there in short stories such as Black Flower. Um, but this time, you draw further, deeper in raw blood. It's about the idea of a war criminal. You're familiar with ha Hannah Arendt's notion of the banality of, of evil, course, a man yeah. like Eichmann. Do you see that at work today, that banality? I always think it was a mistake in Hannah Arendt's case that the word clung the banality of evil. Evil is not banal. Evil is evil is evil is evil, as Gertrude Stein would put it. What is the, t and I'd like to talk about the evil and the trying to get inside the man's head to the evil that the woman later on, when she is violated and mm. a refugee. What is banal, and I felt it when I sat in the courtrooms in The Hague, I went there for both Mladic and Karadigas, Marosevic. Yeah. Uh, what is banal, and we all suffer from it a little bit, is the attitude to evil, or if you like, the ongoing attitude, one cannot sit up every day of one's life or sleep, a sound sleep, earn the living, cook the dinner, and actually retain in one's soul, along with one's memory, the entire technicans of evil that is around us. You can't. You go mad. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare, by allowing, uh, in the Scottish play, by making Macbeth briefly mad, making Lady Macbeth uh, in mad forever, irretrievably mad. Of course, 
touched a- If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you, delved into the madness consequent upon evil. Unfortunately for history, because Shakespeare is Shakespeare, but for history, Stalin did not go mad till the moments before he died, and then his doctors were afraid to go into him. It's as if everything, all the deaths, all the everything Stalin had done, was about to stalk him in the minutes of his death. Nobody would go into his room. They wouldn't go in when he had died, even. Likewise with Hitler and with Charles Taylor, with many in Africa. I mean, there are so many. What frightens me about their evil, and it's this in particular that I wanted to explore and write about insofar as I could get to it, was the absolute absence of any remembrance conscience, feeling, guilt, Mm -hmm. shadow, it's not there. Now, how is that done? Is that done by will? Is that done by such a mythologized version of self to self that that those people, whoever they be, say, I am innocent, I am God? Mm. I'm going to ask you, to what extent your experience, uh, that heartbreaking experience of watching Northern Ireland over those decades and running into trouble in your attempt to describe it, capture it, get the sublime nature of it, you, you have an experience of that evil and that darkness and you've tried to capture it before. Did that play into this in any way that's, that's known to you or obvious to you? I think it might play a part in it, but it's not the essential thing. I think we are born on our forehead. We are born with the things, and particularly I think this about writing, we are born with the thing we will inevitably do and go on doing. I think there's a wonderful line about Branwell Bronte that was written by, I think it was Hawthorne, but I'm not certain, which said, they described, he describes the birth, the baptism of, of Branwell in this lonely place in Haworth. And then the line says, some dark shadow came, I know not what, and interposed. And I don't want to sound pretentious because it's the crime of fiction. There's a lot of pretension around. And I would not, I have many sins, but I would not want that sin on the list. I think something to do with my early and pre-early and pre-birth. Mr. Beckett was very keen. He would have liked this conversation because he felt it also. And then my actual circumstances of fear made me the kind of person and hence the kind of writer that I am. So that my experiences out in the world going to the north of Ireland in what they uh, called the Troubles was indeed the Troubles for everyone, for all sides, Catholic and Protestant and Irish and English Troubles. That might have whetted, if you like, the uh, curiosity, not curiosity, but I'd become more aware. Obsession almost. The obsession, well, obsession, obsession is really internal. What you see outside is your experience that 
teaches you some things, uh, not teaches you enough. But mm. I, I would say when I set out to write the novel, this novel, The Little Red Chairs, I did not know, and it's just as well I did not know, the very dark and, to my own self, terror place that I had to go. Because mm. you can't write about those things. And I, I didn't want any terror that was calculated or that terror has to be organic. Terror is a, is, is, is a natural thing. It's not an imposed thing, if you know what I mean. Yes. And the many terrors that befell me were the, the man himself, the terror of a man who can beguile mil thousands or millions, how to explore, how to in any way write about it other than just a statement. And my device for that was uh, having, I had no confrontation when I went to The Hague. With, I was quick out of that every day, back to the hotel, and uh, sat by chance next to the mothers of uh, the massacre of Serebrinka. And they were grey women with grey, sorrowful, angry expressions. And at first they were very suspicious of me because they didn't know whether I was, whose side I was on. In this courtroom in The Hague, people were told where to sit. And there were some cohorts for him and some were against. So trying to even, they handed me the card one day and I asked the interpreter what, if she would ask one of the mothers, what, what could help her after all that, sons, husbands, brothers, all that, who died, what could give her any peace of mind, because they had none. And her answer, which I have in the book, and this is why I had such rich experience writing this book, it was a painful experience, but rich, her answer was, one bit of bone. Now, for a human being, any of us, to even imagine that, it is so huge, it is such a tiny thing, one piece of bone. So it made me, myself, more conscious of everything. Mm. And I am an emotional person, sorry for it. Emotion is out of fashion nowadays, but <laughs> I'm still keeping the fashion up. That was one. Then. When Fidelma, the character who falls in love with the man to her great misfortune, she does become pregnant, but she is violated by his cohorts who have come to get him. When she comes to London with nothing and knowing no one. For that, because I came to London with not much, mm. but for that I had to meet masses of people. And I was lucky that everyone I met in a centre, everyone I met, not only offered to, but were wanting to tell me their story. I mean, you've, you've written better, I think, than just about anybody I can think of, with this question of evil arriving into ordinary circumstances, yes, sometimes with ordinary protagonists. Out, uh, I mean, you were one of the people who marched at the time in 2003, seeing in Tony Blair, let's take yes. it, Keep it within Europe, but take it out of the, of the famous gargoyles. Tony Blair seemed to you a man who, as it were, was at the front of a potentially evil series Absolutely. of acts. I think it was, and I voted for Tony Blair. I think it was it's one, Tony Blair influenced most certainly by the triptych of George Bush, Donald Rumsfeld, and who's that other cowboy? Uh, what was his name? I'll think of it in a minute. Dick Cheney. He was very, very obviously and foolishly and calamitously, not foolishly, influenced. Um, once I would, once you fall into that charnel house of killing with an ostensibly verbalized, 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 justified reason. Weapons of mass destruction, that was that then. There's other words now. 
you cut off from being a human being, you die. So we're on, I, mean, I know that you and I could discuss this all night, and we're going to go to the audience in a minute, but um, that charnel house, yes. um, we may be on the brink of it again. Uh, we well, may be about to step it's, into it's there. It's only a military intervention in yeah. Syria might uh, bring that again. Is that your opinion, or are you more hopeful? Hope is a, a bit of a one word in these situations. When I first... Um, read about it and saw on television and I thought yes I think from my long distance reading and looking and I thought yes that is a good thing to do that is doing something uh, President Holland the day after the Paris thing and I, I think he's actually a very brave and sensible man President Holland he sent planes into and he said we will destroy ISIS well that's a tall order. I don't think French planes are enough to destroy us. So when it came up then for the English Parliament and vote, my first instinct was to say yes. It should follow in the path of what, uh, because I feel that it's different to Iraq, and it is different to Iraq in a very important way. So I thought, yes, England, and I'm not English, but I, I do vote here, <laughs> it appears. Uh, I thought that was the right thing to do, both right um, militarily mm. and humanly. I, I believed that. Yesterday, there were some really amazing voices in the Observer newspaper, and they were voices, they were the voices of English uh, pundits and politicians who really all say what we know they're going to say. You know, it's, there's very little free thinking. There's very little of a naked individual saying, for the first time, this is what I think. They already have, you know, prefabricated mm. opinion. But these were the voices of men and women in parts of Syria who are stuck there. And there was, you know, there was one person who was, they, they gave their jobs as well. One was a journalist, one was a nurse, one was a different everyday job. What were they saying? And they said the very opposite to what we had hoped, or it is to be hoped, that intervention. They said that it is, that there will be as many mistakes in these drones and planes as not. That the very thing which is setting out to be done, which is to wipe out ISIS, they don't mention, the Syrians do, but we don't in England or Europe as much mention Assad anymore, who is mm. the, the, the creator, the criminal creator of all this. So they said it will not be the answer to, what, to, the, to where they are, and it will not be the answer to what the intention, and the well good intention is. So I'm very lucky that my profession is at home in my own house with these pens every day, because were I a politician... Well, you're morally alive to, to these things that are right dead centre in, in our day now, uh, in, in, in a way that gives one hope for uh, the position of the novelist in relation to some of these questions. I mean, before going to the audience, one of the things that certainly um, strikes me, strikes me with each of your books, is that there's almost a shadow text somewhere in the beautiful mesh of it, and I felt the heart of darkness. Oh, I uh, love and Conrad heart of darkness. was here. Mr. Kurtz. Uh, has it been a helpful. Uh, I read two books constantly while I was writing this. I read a bit of everything. I read the Bible and Shakespeare. And my mother never got me there. She never <laughs> prevented me. But my, my two, like my books that I, every day that I would. One was The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, which is just, well, you all know it. It's just can't describe how good it is. It's like, it's like a ghost book, you know, it steals in on you. And the other was J.M. Coates's, which two critics mentioned. I'll be accused of plagiarism probably before <laughs> I die. The other was J.M. Coates's uh, disgrace, because in it he had something, he had a violence, <coughs> of, uh, chapters of violence, and it's what happens then. The chapter of violence, a book can end, many books do, in fact. But it's to go on from there. The path is not fully trodden. And that was a great help to me. And 
you know, you need a bit of courage every day when you're writing. Mm. You need a bit of... I read a brilliant piece once by David Remnick, and it was about a man who, teach, who trains fighters, boxers. This man was very skilled at it, and every morning he would take before a fight, well, while they were training, his, whoever he was teaching, and he would beat hell out of him, both with language and with decision. I need that boxing man, but to be a little gentler, to come to my house every morning when I try to work. And it's very hard, as you know, Andrew, and you have written great books, it is very hard to maintain the momentum, the courage, the egotism, the ruthlessness, and above all, the dedication mm. over a period of years. I'm not deriding poetry. I worship poetry. I read poetry all the time. But a good poem can be written in a matter of months. A good novel cannot be written in a matter of months. So I need that fighter over from New York. I think you have them inside <laughs> you. Now, we're going to go to the audience because, um, you know, I know you've got lots to ask. And would you please wait for the famous roving mic? Because this is being recorded. It's like, I know you've got loud voices, but this will allow the whole business to go onto the tape. Um, so we've got two people over here. If we can just rapidly get through the questions, I know there's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in your evil is evil is evil is evil thoughts and um, how you, you said after you spoke about that that you were interested in men who have no guilt, who have no conscience, who think they're God. Yes. Uh, and, and what do you think, makes, if, if you've considered it, I'm sure you have, about the ideas of sociopaths and psychopaths and how we, we seem to be living in a culture that's much more keen to pathologise evil and therefore maybe to excuse it? Um, what's the question? What's the pith of the question? You, yeah. It's this, it's this attempt at society now by pathologising it, by making it sort of other, um, perhaps normalises it in a way that it makes it easy to forgive. Is, is that part of it? Yeah. Um, it would be very hard, and thank you for your question. And by the way, when you said men with, who've done bad deeds, there's a few women in there as well. Madame Mao Zedong <laughs> did what she did. I think, uh, in a way, you, by, by suggesting that for someone, Mr. A or Madam A, who did this, to, to then group him, him or her as pathological or a, a lunatic is letting the matter off the hook because mm. they are not lunatics. That is the unfortunate thing. They are sane. They are very sane. They might be lunatics if they did one thing and then, if you like, flipped went off the face of the earth, but they consistently, they plan, they build armies, they make, they thrive on it. So they are two separate uh, things, I think. This lady here. Thank you. Thank you. Jennifer Johnston said recently that initially she wanted to be an actor, and I also read into you with them, I think Hilary Mantel said she wanted to be a historian, but from hearing you speak, it sounds to me that being a writer, there was no other life that you were destined to, to live. But is that a false assumption? Well, words, uh, the question is, did I want to be anything else other than a writer? And words, uh, to quote Mr. Beckett said, words are my great love. <laughs> and he said, not many, words are my love. But I will confess to you that in my very early convent days, I was uh, being such a good girl and not the future author of these dirty books. <laughs> I was picked to play the Virgin Mary in the, in the Miracle of Fatima. And my role was as follows. I was standing on a three-tiered butter box. They were made of wood, the butter box. The butter came in big pats of butter in the wooden boxes. And the, the, it was covered with blue towel. And all I had to do was stand there with hands folded as the Lady of Fatima, and the children of Fatima were on the stage around me, whispering and blah, blah, blah. 
I did it immaculately, forgive the pun, <laughs> for about three nights. The Bishop of Galway was due on the fourth night. And 10, no less, five minutes into the entertainment, <laughs> I and the butter boxes and the towel came a cropper. So any notion I might have had of the acting profession, it was very nice to be on stage. And I have, I have a lot of friends, as Andrew has as well, maybe we all have, actors. And I sometimes talk to them about the different kind of courage that an actor requires and that a writer requires. I was talking to an actor yesterday only, and he said, I couldn't do what you do. I couldn't go into the cell alone and stay there for years. And I said, but I couldn't, I think, do what actors do, especially theater actors, which is to come on and bring a whole world. Imagine playing. Iago. Oh, yeah. Oh, you'd have. Uh, there are even harder ones. I think you could go to town on Iago. <laughs> but, you know, some of the kings. Shakespeare's so many kings lines. Play, so many lines. And to actually do that and overcome. Maybe every job, to some extent, is about overcoming two things. The inner terror, which I believe is essential for the incentive to do anything, and the terror of how will the world receive it. That's always there. The second part can't be there till you finish the work. Because if people say to me, who do you write your books for? No one. I mean, if I think of my mother, I think certainly not. And if I think, because it's too, it's so private, it's so secretive. The very thing you should then hand out to the world. It's a bit nuts, to tell you the truth. Let me uh, forward this, Eddie. Yep. As a second generation Irish, I was very interested that we're talking about going back to Ireland. James Joyce, who never returned to his native, spent his life in uh, Trieste, never went back, yet he would write to this auntie, this, he, he, he hated to go, he never wanted to go back, but yet he, he wanted to go back, but he never went back, and he would write to this auntie about streets in Dublin and places like that. Yes. Yeah. Well, he was, Dublin lived in him. Dublin, he once said, a little bit conceitedly, and like you, I worship James Joyce. He said, if Dublin were to be destroyed tomorrow morning by fire, it could be reproduced by the streets of Ulysses. Hmm. He never wanted to go back because two, two reasons. They wounded and vilified, and they, they really harmed him. They, he was terrified of them, even though he was a brave man. But I think also, never forget, um, that a place or a person or an experience in life registered and reoccurring in the memory is just as effective as if you're reliving it in actuality. In fact, it's, you know, uh, the daffodils, for often on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood. The old daffodils come back, you see. And Joyce, Dublin was as important in Joyce's work, the streets, the, the ash bins, the awning over the shops, the this, the that, the other, as his, the religion that he abnegated from, as his mother, his father. Joyce felt more, for a man who wrote such, so intellectually as well, he's permeated with feelings. And he said, the three things, one of the first three images that made him a writer was his mother's first kiss, the first time he had Holy Communion, and a prostitute's lingual kiss. <laughs> so he was himself, I said, saturated. He, needn't, he didn't have to go back. And he knew if he went back, there were so many people so jealous of him. Yeats's lines, out of Ireland have we come, great hatred, little room, maimed us from the start. I carry from my mother's womb a fanatic heart. That is true of Joyce as well. And uh, I think uh, the fact that 
he didn't go back probably served him better. Thank you. C.T. Jung. Oh, Jung. Jung, yes. Uh, and his concept of the shadow right. is about evil. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't think I know enough about it. Oh. <laughs> uh, Jung talks about it in, in Memories, Reflections and Dreams. Yes. And his belief is that it is presence to some extent in many human beings. It is not absent from humanity. It is how a person or a human being then what the person does with that, whether he uses, exploits and indulges it or controls it. There is, of course, evil, uh, all our religion and the being put from the Garden of Eden that we first got the curse of Cain. That is true. But I think mass evil, which is more what we've been talking about, and that creates war, dispersal, famine, everything that is happening in Syria now, that is, it's beyond any of the, anything Jung or anybody else might say. I'm determined Because to, it's so destructive. To let those of you who have still got questions have a crack of the whip, so please dive in. Yep. I'm one of the few, maybe the only person here who never read any of your books, but Good. <laughs> I saw a documentary about you uh, last year on documentary, I can't remember which channel, you were an hour long, beautiful documentary and you were as articulate and I was absolutely enamored by it and I said I've got to read your book but I've not read yet. One, one thing that um, I need to ask you is, in your talk today, you talked about predestination and you talked about destiny that you believe that there's, you're destined to be or, or in a vocation, like Bronwyn was destined to be, you know, um, in the shadow of the sisters. So, do you really believe in predestination? Okay, thank you. Do I believe in predestination? I think I do. <laughs> I know it seems a, a, a lazy answer. I when One can only speak for one's own experience. And I believe that I knew about language and the alchemy or the possible alchemy and miracle and power in its own way of language before I was uh, privileged enough to read great literature. I do believe it for myself, but I, it's not, I dread always being didactic. Um, because my belief might be something that I need to keep myself afloat on that job. So it is a great question, and I'm disappointing you by not being able to give you a great and ir irrefutable answer. If you believe it for yourself, then you believe it. You said earlier in the conversation tonight that the mark is on you. In a sense, some I, essential journey is mapped out for you. Is that possible? Well, I believe it is, and many poets have, have said so in different forms. Um, Leromontov has said it. What is written on a man's hand when he is born is the book of his or her life. Mm. Because we started with a notion of small town Ireland, and I'm going to end there. I know you and I both have affection, shall we say, for Thomas Wolfe's uh, novel, or at least the title, um, You Can't Go Home you Again. You Can't Go Home Again. And I'm going home for my funeral, I hope. Well, that's, I wasn't going to head towards the funeral, but I, I did want to ask you if you thought that there is an inevitability about that return. I mean, it slightly picks up in the man's notion of a, a journey preordained. Do you feel, as you did again, writing this wonderful book, that there was, some, there was an engagement with Ireland again that was necessary for well, you? Well, I do. In the end of this book, because I have to keep reminding you, that's a joke, this joke. They all assemble for a Christmas party, a Midsummer Night's Dream, sort of impromptu Christmas party. And then in 45 different voices, refugees, um, migrants from different countries have all been rehearsed to sing the word home. That's all they have to do, sing the word home in their own tongue to the music they have rehearsed. Well, it gets a bit awry until one woman takes over. And I speak of her voice as in her, the dead and the, the memories, the dead memory coming through song to life. And the last line, which is an answer to your question about me as well as the characters that I've written about, 
You would not believe how many words there are for home and what savage music there can be wrung from it. So home is home and it's a mixed bag, but it's where we always have to end up, whether it's in the mind or in the body. Sublime. What can I say, ladies and gentlemen? Ed O'Brien. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>